Hey everybody, good morning. Good to see all of you here today. Thank you for joining us. Those of you who are watching online, welcome. We're glad wherever you're at. And uh, I want to remind you that you can always catch this message and uh, the other messages on Spotify as well as as well as uh, any of our, our blog sites. You can, or not blog sites, but podcast sites, okay? Well, I've come here this morning. It's a beautiful day outside, uh, but I've come here this morning you know, just with kind of a heavy heart um, because I've heard that uh, just in the last few days, a number of people in our church have lost, have lost their loved ones. And um, it's always so difficult and so painful uh, when you go through something like that. Yesterday, for example, I heard that Chris Hahn attends our church, lost his dad. And also yesterday, Carol Shin and Ann Kim her sisters, they lost their dad. Um, Jane Mato lost her dad, I believe, on Thursday. And, uh, and so I want to begin our time uh, and just ask you to pray. Join me in praying for them, that God would comfort them. I know that uh, because of their faith in Jesus, uh, they are present in the Lord today and more alive than they've ever been. And, and that's something that we can really rejoice about. But, but it is painful to go through loss like that. And then, and then I heard this morning that a little boy that I, I dedicated here, that we dedicated here, Leon, uh, he, he's been sick for a few days with some fever, and then his little sister, older sister, Noel, has also been sick. And I, I understand it's non-COVID related, uh, or they've tested negative, so we're thankful for that. But let's, let's keep them in our prayers. Uh, their dad and mom, Roland, and Wayna are just a special part of our church. And so I want to lift up those babies because, as, as you all know, when it's a little one that gets sick, you know, I think adults, we can figure out how to get through that. But uh, when you had a little one, it, it's really doubly um, more troublesome, worrisome, and, uh, and difficult. So let's, let's open up our time in a word of prayer, okay? And let's just ask God to, to bless these people and uh, also bless our time together today. All right. Father, thank you so much for gathering us together today as a church. And it's so good to see uh, all these faces here. And Father, thank you for being with us as we get through a you know, really difficult uh, season in our lives. But Lord, we're hopeful for all the things that are happening. Lord, our, we come this morning. I know I come this morning just, you know, my heart's just been heavy for for just the losses that we've experienced. You know, they weren't COVID losses, but nevertheless, a loss uh, is a loss, Father. And so I want to lift up Chris to you and Jane to you and Carol and Ann to you. And uh, Father, I know even, even Cheryl Yoshida lost her mom last week. And I, I just pray, God, we just pray for all these folks who've lost loved ones here recently. And uh, we ask, God, that you would bring comfort to them. And we pray that they would sense your presence and your, your nearness at a time like this. Uh, Father, how good it is to know that because of our faith in you, our loved ones can go on to, to and, and when they leave us, they're not really gone, but they're, they're in your presence, Lord. And that is so true. So we thank you for that. I pray that that fact would just bring comfort to the families. Father, and Lord, we, we also want to remember Leon and baby Leon and, and Noel, and we ask God that you would touch their lives. Father, if they've got fever today, will you break it in Jesus' name? Break their fevers, and, and Father, get, get, get them through this hump. We pray that you would bring healing today to their bodies. Keep their parents strong. Keep them healthy, God, so that they can be there not be in isolation, be there just to care for their children. So, Lord, and, and for many of us, we're still 
dealing with personal struggles. It might be health-related. It might be finance-related. It might be relational. It might be emotional. But whatever it is, Father, I want to lift up our church and ask God that you would touch all those folks out there who are struggling right now. And today, Lord, as we open up your word, you know, in many ways I feel like the prophet Isaiah who, who just felt so unworthy and uh, I feel unworthy to be able to, to preach this message today. So I ask God that your Holy Spirit would be the one to teach us and your Holy Spirit would be the one to, to convict us and uh, open our eyes, illuminate our hearts, God. So thank you, Father. We commit this time to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many years ago, there's a fellow named John Train. And he wrote a book called The Remarkable Names of Real People. And so what he did was he traveled the world and, and uh, compiled the names of interesting people that he met all around the world, people who had interesting names. And his book was such a hit that he decided to write a sequel. Two of them actually came across, wrote another book called Most Remarkable Names and another one called Even More Remarkable Names. Now, um, I've never read any of his books, but you know, just in reviewing uh, the books uh, on various sites, I learned a little bit about some of the names that he included in his books. And I have to admit, I have to admit that some of the names that are in his book are pretty, are pretty interesting, are pretty remarkable. Like a man named Herman Sherman Berman, who was a New York City commissioner. I mean, that was his real name, Herman Sherman Berman. And then a, a woman named Zoda Viola Klontz Gazola. And again, it's, it's amazing. That was her real name. And then he met a trombonist, and his name was Hubert Bubert. Hubert Bubert. And then another guy, his name was Katz Meow. Mr. Katz Meow. Real, real name. Um, and then also named in the book was a guy named Cardinal Sin. Cardinal Sin was the archbishop, really, the archbishop of Manila. And you know why his name was Cardinal Sin? It's because he never committed the cardinal sin. I mean, that's why he was the Archbishop of Manila. And then it was Mary Louise Pantseroff. I hope not in public, but uh, Mary Louise Pantseroff. And then Mrs. Belcher Whack Whack. Mrs. Belcher Whack Whack. Let me tell you how she got her name. True story. Her name was Belcher. And one day Belcher got married to Mr. Whack. And so her name became Belcher Wack. Well, one day she got tired of him and divorced him. And she decided to keep her married name. So her name was Belcher Wack. Well, a few years later, she remarried. Well, who do you think she remarried? Of all the people in the world, she, re she remarried her first husband's brother, Mr. Wack. And so her name became Belcher Wack Wack. That's her name. That's how she got her name. There was also a school teacher from Spencer, Iowa, and, uh, and her name was Ivaoda, Ivaoda, and I think she really caused a stink. I, I, anyways, I think these are hilarious, don't you think so? And then there was a lady from Philadelphia, her name was Anita Bath, and she sure did, Anita Bath. And then there was Constant Agony uh, from Chasey Lake, New York, and I hope he or she wasn't. And then John Train found that sometimes a person's name was a dead giveaway for what they did. Like this man here, Mr. C Sharp Minor. That was his name. He was an organist, C Sharp Minor. And then there was a, a pair, a couple, and their name was Cheatham and Steel. And they were bankers. And you think that they cheated and stole? I don't know, Cheatham and Steel. 
And finally, this last one, his name was Dr. E.Z. Filler, and he was a dentist from Roslyn Heights, New York. No kidding, Dr. E.Z. Filler. Now, I've never, as I said, I've never read John Train's books, but my guess is, my guess is he probably didn't include the most remarkable name of all in his book, the name of Jesus. You know, in all of human history, there's never been a name or there never will be a name like Jesus. Yet, my guess is his name is probably in his, isn't, wasn't in his book. In fact, if you took a survey today and you asked people to name the most remarkable name, my guess is that the name of Jesus wouldn't be on most people's short list because we are increasingly a culture uh, that is obsessed with self. We are increasingly a culture in where it's not about Jesus, but it's about us. It's about me. It's about my rights. It's about my choices. It's about my freedoms. It's about what I want. It's about how I feel. It's about me. And whenever me takes center stage, then Jesus gets cast onto the backstage. You see, self always crowds out Jesus. It self crowds out Jesus every single time. And that's what seems to be going on today. Uh, it's not about Jesus anymore. For a lot of people, Jesus is merely an expletive or he's an exclamation point that you say whenever you become exasperated. Or Jesus is a name that is only thought of at Christmas or at Easter or only when you're in trouble. Well, today we're continuing in our series, Now What? And the idea for this series came about because of our profound concern for all the things that are going on in the world today. And a matter that is most concerning to us, most concerning to us here in America is that, is that we've become all about self. We're all about ourselves and not about Jesus. After all, we are the selfie generation. You know, one of the most sobering moments in my marriage came when my daughters were still quite young. On this particular occasion, we were invited to go to a birthday party. And uh, when you have children... It seems that your weekends are taken up with sports activities and birthday parties. And I can't remember the exact circumstances, and I can't remember whose birthday party it was, but I remember, distinctly remember, not wanting to go. I didn't want to go to the birthday party. And I'll never forget what Cheryl said to me when I told her I didn't want to go. I said, you go. She said, it's not about you. That's what she said to me. She said, it's not about you. And those four words pricked my heart. It was, as I said, one of the most sobering moments in our marriage. Because to be honest with you, I wanted it to be about me. Because I didn't want to go to the birthday party. I was tired. And there were other things I wanted to do on that Sunday afternoon after preaching at church. You know, I was tired. I wanted to take a nap. I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. Watch, watch a, a blockbuster video back then, a long, long time ago. I know many of you don't even know what blockbuster is. But I believe that that's how a lot of men and women go into marriage. A lot of men and women go into marriage thinking it's all about them. It's all about them, and they think it's about their happiness. It's going to be about their fulfillment. It's about what their spouse is going to do for them. It's how their spouse is going to make them feel. And if that's what you think marriage is all about, then my advice to you is don't get married because marriage is not about you. Husbands, it's not about you. It's about your wife. And maybe if you're a wife, you might want to poke your husband in the ribs to remind him of what I just said, but don't be too hasty because wives, your marriage is not about you either. It's about your husband. And when you both understand that, 
then you will have a blessed marriage. In the same way, your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. Did you know that? Your life is not about you. No matter how much you think your life is about you, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And when you understand that, then you will live a blessed life. And so why is it all about Jesus? Well, very simply, your life is about Jesus because there's no one like him. There's absolutely no one like him. Now, for those of you who are married, my guess is you probably married your spouse because there was no one like him or there was no one like her. I mean, that's why I married Cheryl, because there was no one like her. I mean, she was beautiful on the outside, but she was also beautiful on the inside. On the inside, she has a big heart. She's thoughtful. She's caring. She's funny. She's creative. She's kind. She's considerate. She's self-sacrificing. She loves the Lord. She loves and cares for the down and out. She's smart and she's adventurous. And at one time she was very athletic like me. And there isn't anyone, and there isn't anyone I'd rather be with more than her. She's who I want to be with, even if it's an afternoon, a Sunday afternoon shopping at Ralph's or Costco. She is my Shiohama mama. But as wonderful and unique and as special as she is, she pales in comparison to Jesus. She pales in comparison to him. Let me show you what I mean. All right, take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. The verses are, uh, look in your Bible if you can. That would be the best way to look at it. You can also look at the screen because I'll put the verses up here for you. You can also open up our app. We have a South Bay Community Church app. You can get the store, download it, and you can follow the message there. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And I like the way the New Living Translation puts it because it really clarifies what this is saying here. And I'll read that for you uh, in the NLT. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. For in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in a human body. Of God is in a human body. This is an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. The fullness of God is in a human body. The word fullness in the Greek means sum total, right? New Testament is written in the Greek, so sometimes we look at the Greek to see what it really means, and it means sum total. In other words, the sum total of who God is is in Jesus Christ. That means all of his powers, all of his might, all of his attributes, all of his goodness, all of his perfections, all of his grandeur, all of his grace, all of his mercy, all of his authority, all of his glory, the sum total of his nature are all found in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews said this about Jesus, Hebrews 1.3. He wrote, he is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. First, this tells us that Christ was the radiance of God's glory. The Greek word for radiance refers to a light that is flashing forth. It's a light that's flashing forth. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus didn't just radiate God's light like the moon radiates the, or reflects the sun's light. No, Jesus was the sun, S-U-N, in the sense that he was the light. He wasn't a reflection of the light like the moon is. He was the light. He was God's glory. He didn't simply mirror it. In the Gospel of John, there's an intriguing verse about the prophet Isaiah and the glory of Christ. Let me unpack this for you further. Take a look at, turn to John chapter 12, all right? John chapter 12. 
Uh, let me set this up for you. To keep, you know, just to set this up for you, you need to keep in mind that Isaiah the prophet was uh, lived a prop, roughly 750 years before Christ. So he lived roughly 750 years before Christ. Yet he's mentioned in the Gospel of John, John 12, 41. Take a look at it. Here's what the Apostle John wrote about Isaiah in John 12, 41. He wrote, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. All right? Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, I'm not going to get into what Isaiah said, but for our purposes, all I want you to do is focus on the last part of that verse, which says, and he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw Christ's glory. According to John, he saw Isaiah, saw Jesus' glory. And it begs the question, when? When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? Well, he didn't see him when Christ came to earth when he was born because Isaiah was long gone. He'd been dead for hundreds of years. Well, I can tell you almost exactly when he saw his glory. I can almost tell you to the year. In fact, it was the year 739 B.C., that's when he saw his glory. 739 B.C., before, before Christ, um, you know, went, before Christ was born, 739 is before Christ was born. And the significance of 739 B.C. is that, first of all, Isaiah was very much alive at the time. He was very much alive. Second, it was the year that King Uzziah uh, died. King Uzziah was, a, was the king of Judah. He reigned for over 50 years, and in 739 B.C., he died at the age of 68. Most likely cause of death was leprosy. According to 2 Chronicles 26, verse 21, I'll put it up here for you. It says, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. Now, it doesn't say that he died of leprosy, but there's a pretty good chance that he did. He had leprosy all the way to his death, right? And when he died in 739 B.C., his death left Judah reeling. I mean, they were reeling with grief because for many, he was the only king that they had ever known. He'd ruled for over 50 years. And, and now that he was gone, people didn't know what to do. They didn't know how they would go on. They, they, they said, this has been our, he's been our leader for over 50 years. What are we going to do? And the, and the people became afraid. And so that's when the prophet Isaiah, who was alive, went to the temple. He went to the temple of God, which was there in Jerusalem, the one that Solomon built. Presumably, he went to the temple to pray. And when he got inside the temple, he saw a sight that absolutely blew him away. And he wrote about it in Isaiah chapter 6. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, in the, year that, in the year that King Uzziah died, that was 739 B.C., Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, this was Isaiah, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, it was a mind-boggling scene. 
absolutely mind-boggling. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what was in here. First of all, Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the Lord. That's verse 1. He saw the Lord. Now notice the word Lord. I'm going to highlight it for you. The word Lord is spelled capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, capital L-O-R-D. See, anytime you see the word Lord spelled out this way in the, in the New Old Testament, uh, it is the Hebrew word Adonai. It is Adonai. And it literally, Adonai means the sovereign one. That's what it means. And so I believe that when Isaiah wrote this, he chose his words carefully. He chose to say that this was Adonai to describe who he saw. And it was his way of saying, hey, our king just died. But guess what? God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in charge. And so you don't have to worry. I believe that's what he was trying to convey here. Second, we see that Isaiah said in verse 1 that the Lord was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. He wore a royal robe, and the view was absolutely stunning. Third, according to verse 2, Isaiah saw angels in the temple. And verse 3 tells us that they called out, Holy, holy, holy. And this was a reference to the Lord of hosts. They said of him, Holy, holy, holy. And then in verse 3, the word Lord, notice that it's there. It's all capped this time. And one called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word Lord is all capped. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Which means that the Hebrew word for Lord here is different from Adonai that we see earlier on in verse 1. The Hebrew word here is not Adonai. It is the word Yahweh. The Hebrew word Yahweh. And Yahweh refers to God's self-existence. It doesn't refer to his sovereignty like Adonai. It refers to his self-existence. Yahweh is the idea is that God is. That's the idea God is. God will be and will always be. And whenever you see the word Lord all capped in, in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh. Remember that. Right? So in this passage, Isaiah proclaimed that the whole earth was filled with Adonai, Yahweh's glory. And then, fifth, the foundation of the temple shook. And Isaiah cried out, and here's the clincher. Here's what I wanted to get to. The clincher in verse 5, the last line in verse 5. Isaiah proclaimed, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There it is, Lord Yahweh. It's all capped again. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is the phrase. Folks, this is the phrase that John was referring to in John 12, 41, when he said that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. This is what he was referring to. He saw him 739 years earlier in the temple of God. He saw Christ in the temple of God. He saw him before he came to planet Earth. And he saw him as Adonai and Yahweh. He saw Jesus in all of his glory. Now going back to Hebrews 1.3 again. Jesus was, it also says that Jesus was the exact imprint of God's nature. Take a look at that. He was the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint was used to refer to an engraving on wood or an etching in metal. In other words, Jesus wasn't a photocopy. He wasn't photoshopped. Jesus was the exact imprint of God. And finally, the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And uh, let, me, let me ask you something. Do you know what a rebar is? You all know what a rebar is, right? looks like this. It's a steel bar, and it's used. I mean, it's so strong you can't even bend it. But these steel bars were used to reinforce. They're used to reinforce concrete or cement to make it stronger. 
For example, when the contractor built this building, he used rebar in the walls to keep to hold up the walls. In fact, if he didn't use rebar in the concrete the, the concrete wall, then the concrete walls would collapse under the weight of the second floor. Couldn't stand it. But the rebars are the ones that hold it up. Did you know that God uses rebars to hold the human body together? Yeah, he uses rebars to hold the human body together. The human rebars are called laminin. It's called laminin. And according to the Oxford Medical Dictionary, let me give you a definition of laminin. You're going to love this. Laminin, according to Oxford Medical, is a fibrous glycoprotein forming a major component of basement membranes and serving as an adhesive surface for epithelial cells. I bet you always wanted to know that, right? What in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you a simpler definition. It can be found in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Webster says a, gly- a laminin is a glycoprotein component of connective tissue basement membrane. And here's the part I want you to get that promotes cell adhesion. It promotes cell adhesion. In other words, laminin is a molecule that acts like a glue to keep the human body together. It's like a glue that keeps the human body together. Laminin is literally responsible for keeping your skin on. I mean, your skin wouldn't be here if it weren't for laminin. Laminin keeps your skin on your body. It holds the linings in your body together. It keeps your cells together. It keeps your body from falling apart. It's all laminin. And you know what laminin looks like? It's like rebar. You know what it looks like? You'll never believe this. It's shaped like a cross. Now, just in case you don't think I'm making this up, here's a diagram of laminin that was drawn by Science Direct, which is a science database uh, uh, website. It's not a religious organization. And as you can see, it's shaped like a cross. And then here's a schematic drawing of laminin that I found on Wikipedia. And so this is so crazy. Our bodies are literally, our bodies are literally held together by these tiny cross-shaped proteins. How uncanny is that? That they're shaped like a cross to hold our bodies together. Going back to Hebrews 1.3 again, it tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, his word is all that is necessary to keep our bodies together. His word is all that is necessary to keep our universe together. Here's what Paul said about it in Colossians 1.17. said something very similar. He said this, And he, Christ, is before all things. And in Christ, in him, all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. Did you know that according to scientists, the earth weighs approximately six sextillion tons? Six, I don't know how they got that. Couldn't put it on a scale to, to weigh it, but they figured it out. And, they're, you know, we got some pretty smart scientists around here. So they figured it out. They said the earth weighs six sextillion tons. Here's a beautiful image of the earth that was taken by satellite. I found this on Google Earth. All right. That thing weighs six sextillion tons. And this is such a beautiful image. You can actually see parts of the Milky Way in the background. And if you're wondering how much six sextillion is... It is a six followed by 21 zeros. This is how much the earth weighs. And you thought you were heavy, right? (laughs) Now, according to Job 26, 7, I love this. The earth just hangs there. It just hangs there. Six 
six sextillion tons, and it just hangs there. Take a look at Job 26, 7. It says, God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on what? Nothing. He just hangs the earth on nothing. How does he do it? How is it that the earth, which weighs so much, doesn't plummet out of control through space? How, how does that happen? It's because he holds all things together by the word of his power. Not only does he hold everything together, God tilted the earth at a 23-degree angle so that we can get our seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And then he sp spins the earth on an, invisible axis, on an invisible axis at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour so we can get our night and day over a 24-hour period. And then he orbits this six sextillion ton behemoth around the, the sun at the rate of 67,000 miles an hour. And at that speed, it's a wonder that none of us have been blown off the planet. But we don't have to worry because God holds all things together. He holds it all together. You see, Jesus is God. He is Adonai. He is Yahweh. And there is no one like him. And it's no wonder that Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God himself. And the fact that Jesus is God makes this next verse even more striking. Take a look at it, Matthew 121. I think we read it here at Christmas. Matthew 121 says, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. You know, as we look about the world today, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that our biggest problem, the biggest problem we face today is sin. Biggest problem today that we face today is not COVID. That's not our biggest problem. It's not the next pandemic. It's, it's not some foreign power. It's, it's not global warming. That's not our biggest problem. It's not the supply chain issue or inflation. It's sin. That's the biggest problem we face today. It's obsession with self. It's narcissism. It's our selfishness. It's lawlessness. It's sin. And the biggest problem the world faced before Jesus came was sin. The biggest problem that the world faced when Jesus came was sin. And it's still the biggest problem that we face today. It is sin. And the fact that Jesus was God makes what he did to save us from our sins all the more remarkable and astonishing. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. He wrote, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. Christ died for us. Will you, will you let that sink in for a moment? Christ died for you. You see, here's how the world works. You do something wrong and you pay a price. That's just the way things work. There are consequences for our actions. The Bible says we reap what we sow. And if you cheat on a test, you'll get an F. If you steal from your company, you'll be fired. If you cheat on your spouse, your spouse will divorce you. If you steal from the store, you'll get arrested. 
Or at least that's how it used to be. But there's a price to pay for sin. There's a price to pay for sin. Even when you think you've gotten away with it, you really won't because God knows what you did. God knows everything. And the Bible says we will pay a price for sin. And that price is death. It's death. It's not jail time. It's death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, Paul's not talking about physical death here. You know, we all die. Everyone's going to die. He's talking about spiritual death. And spiritual death is, the definition of spiritual death is that is separation from God. In other words, the penalty for sin is that you will be separated from God for forever and ever and ever in a place called hell. And God doesn't want that. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. God wants, wants to have fellowship with everyone, every single human being, because we're all, we're all his creation. And that's why he sent Jesus, who was Adonai, who was Yahweh, who was almighty God in human flesh. He sent him to planet Earth to die on a cross for our sins. In other words, he came to take our punishment. He came to die in our place. The God of the universe came to die for you and for me. And that thought, that thought ought to leave every one of us trembling in awe of him. The God of the universe came to die for you. The rest of Romans 6, 23 says this, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, because Jesus died, you don't have to. Because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, you don't have to. Because he died, you live. Because he died, we get to live forever. And it's free. It's free. And and after we die, we get to go to heaven. You see, there's so much more to life than this stuff, right? There's heaven. And that's why I think of Carol and Anne's and Chris and, J- and, and Jane's dad who had faith in Jesus. And I know that their dads are not resting in peace today. Are you kidding me? They're not resting in peace. They are rejoicing and they are so excited and ecstatic as they are in heaven today. More alive than they've ever been. All right, so how do, we, how do we live forever? All we need to do is believe who Jesus was. We need to believe that he was who God said he was. And we need to believe that he died on the cross for his sins and was raised from the dead. And then you just need to follow him. And if you do those things, if you do those things, then, then you will live. And you know what else will happen when you become a Christian? He'll change you. Christ will change you. Here and now on this earth, he will change you. The Bible says we will become a, you will become a brand new person. You become a brand new person. I think of how Jesus changed Arturo Chacon. When, Art was, uh, when Arturo was 15 years old, he didn't get a job at Chick-fil-A. He got a job as a courier for a drug dealer. 15 years old. A job as a drug, a courier for a drug dealer. He didn't handle the drugs. He didn't sell the drugs. He just went to the guys who sold the drugs, get the money from them, and he would take it to the guy, that, the, big, the big dealer, and make sure he got his money. He was the guy who delivered the money from the drug purchasers to the drug dealer, and he was, very, he was paid very, well, very, very well to do it. When he was 17 years old, he got in an altercation and a fight with another man. And this other guy is probably a a drug dealer, I'm guessing, um, pulled out a gun to shoot Arturo. 
Well, Arturo was a faster draw, so he pulled out his gun and shot him first, and he killed him, and the guy died. Next year, a year later, when he was 18, Arturo was sentenced to six years in state prison. Six years in state prison for, for taking the life of this man, and he was only 18 years old. By his admission, Arturo said that he was selfish, he was arrogant, he was disrespectful, he was careless, he was violent, and he was empty. Those are his words. That's what he told me. When he was in prison, he was a bad dude. He said he participated in prison riots. He said he sold drugs in prison. And he was so bad, they gave him a year in solitary confinement. And he said, no big deal. I, I, no, no problem. Spent a year in solitary confinement. Some of you have had to spend a week in your room, isolated, because somebody, because maybe you tested positive. Probably drove you crazy. To be in your room, isolated. He spent a year in, 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 in solitary confinement, no big deal. He was so bad, they tacked on another four years to his six-year sentence. Well, after doing more than nine and a half years, Arturo was finally released from prison, finally got out. And after he got out, he reconnected with an old friend. Her name was Maribel. And one day, they were talking, and she said, hey, why don't you come to my church? I want to invite you to come to my church. So he came to South Bay Community Church, Maribel's church, and he came. And he heard a message like this one. I don't know who was speaking that day. He heard a message like this one. And he surrendered his life to Christ, gave his life to Jesus, and the Lord changed him. He changed him and he changed him. And Arturo literally became a brand new person, a brand new human being. That's what the Bible says will happen. We become a new creature in Christ. 2016, Arturo was baptized. I had the privilege of baptizing him right, right here in, in the back parking lot in this huge pool. In fact, we've got, a, we've got a baptism coming up, I believe, in April. If you're interested, let us know. A few years ago, he married Maribel, and they had a beautiful son. And now Art has a joy you can see in his face. He has a joy and a peace and a hope in his life and on his face that won't quit. He is one of the most blessed guys I've ever met. And when you meet him, you would never know that he spent almost 10 years in prison for taking a, another man's life. You would never know that because Christ can change your life and he changes life. And he's not the only one that Christ has changed. He's changed, probably changed all of your lives in some way, shape, or form. I know he's changed my life, right? And it doesn't matter how bad you are, and he can change your life as well. And it doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far from God you've been. It doesn't matter that you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or an agnostic or an atheist or a Jehovah's Witness. It doesn't matter who you've hurt, how much you've messed your life up. It doesn't matter even that you've taken someone's life. Christ can change you. He can change your life. And he will forgive you of all of your sins. And he will give you a second chance. Maybe for some of you a third chance or a fourth chance. And he will give you purpose and meaning. And he will fill the emptiness in your heart, that hole that you feel in your heart every single day. And he'll give you hope and joy and peace and the gift of eternal life. I mean, you can literally be born again because of Jesus. I mean, would you like to be born again? Would you like to start all over again and be a new person? You can today. See, there's no one like him. There's no one like him. And even when life gets unbearable at times and intolerable at times and life is just dark and it's 
painful and it's hard. Even when those times come, and they come for every one of us. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what do we know? That Christ will be with us. That he will be with you. That he will walk with you and hold you and be there for you. You know, a verse that just keeps getting to be more and more meaningful for me is Isaiah 46, verse 4. Gets more meaningful for, for me every single year as I get older because here's what it says. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. See, no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get in your life, not only will Christ change you, but he'll carry you, even to your old age and your gray hairs. See, there's no one like him. There's no one like Jesus, which is why it must never be about us. It must always be about him. It always must be about him. You know, more than 50 years ago, this man right here, Pastor S.M. Lockridge, preached a sermon titled, That's My King. And uh, his sermon touched has touched the hearts of probably tens of thousands, if not millions of people. The S in his name stands for Shadrach. The M in his name stands for Meshach. And so his name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. That was his name. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, a very prominent African-American church in San Diego. He was a pastor there from 1953 to 1993. So 40 years, a good 40 years, he was a pastor of that church. And um, 50 years ago, he preached a sermon that literally captivated a, the, the part of that that just captivated the world. And I'm going to close by letting you hear what he had to say. And here's what I want to do. I, I want to ask you to imagine for a moment that he is standing right here, right, right here at this podium, that he is a guest speaker today, that he is our, our guest preacher, and he's delivering this to you live. Therefore, as, he is, as you hear his message, I want you to think about all the ways that Jesus has touched your life. See how what he says resonates with you. And I also want to invite you to respond to him um, as you would respond to me. If I say something funny, you laugh. If I say something that makes you sad, you might cry. I want to invite you to respond to him however God leads you to respond to him as if he was here. Take a look. If you know him, don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, no barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his solar supply. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's 
savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. Do you know him? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? Well, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even keep him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Yeah. Do you know him? He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah.
then you will be saved. Today, will you call on his name? Maybe for the very first time, will you call on his name? And this God will come and live in your hearts. This God of whom there's no one like him will come and reside in you. Let's close our time and pray and ask the Lord Jesus to be a part of our lives. As you bow your heads and close your eyes. If you've come here today and you can identify with Arturo or you can identify with anyone who's committed sin and you find yourself far, far away from him, why don't you call on the name of Jesus and tell him that you believe who he was and what he did and you will be saved. Why don't you say something like this to him? Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I confess to you that I've been far, far away from you. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my heart and cleanse me. I ask God that you would grant to me your Holy Spirit and give me the gift of eternal life. I believe. And if you pray that prayer, Today, God will begin to change your life and he will make you a new creature and you will be born again. And for all the rest of us, how often do we live in this self-obsessed world and it's all about us and not about Jesus? Let's confess that to him and ask him to forgive us that our lives would be different from this day forward. Father, I'll be the first one to admit that so often my life is not about you, but it's often about me. Lord, forgive us. Forgive all of us, God. Whenever we've made it about us, and that is so often, whenever we made it about us and about our rights, about our privileges, about our money, about our possessions, about my time, about my space, forgive us. And Lord, help us now to make it all about you always and forever about you because there's no one like you, Jesus. There isn't a name more remarkable. There isn't a name more wonderful. The name that is above every other name, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.